Today's podcast is brought to you by audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash inside outside. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash inside outside to download your free audiobook today. On this episode, we'll be discussing great company culture. We sat down with John Wirtz, co-founder of Huddle, to discuss and tell the Huddle story in its entirety. We left this interview really raw and unedited because it was too good to cut anything. All this and more on this episode of Inside Outside. Running a startup is hard. Running one outside the valley is even harder. Inside Outside is a podcast for inside access to startups outside the valley. Each week, we'll bring you real insights, raw stories, and tactical advice from founders and startup teams around the country. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Inside Outside. You're looking to startups outside Silicon Valley. My name's Matt Boyd. And I'm Paul Jarrett. And I'm Brian Ardinger. I got to go for a second that time. <laughs> I know. Nice. This week we're talking about company culture, corporate culture, building a really good company culture. What do you guys think about that? So I think one of the reasons why you want a strong culture is it allows you to make decisions faster. So if you're a startup of two people, yeah. you pretty much know what's going to happen. You, you're making the decisions, yep. you know what your partner's doing, yeah. things like that. As soon as you add a third person or a fourth person or a fifth person, you exponentially change the dynamic. And yep. Without some core culture or some values or, or uh, clear mission around what you're trying to do, you can often get off track. So I think corporate or company culture, corporate culture, whatever you want to call it, um, allows you to make those decisions faster because people are working from that same kind of script, that same operating system, if you will. Yeah. I also think like, um, whenever you build a really strong company culture that the people identify with, it gives them a place that they feel like they can get their best work done. And like, like a lot of times there's, there's always a, um, a struggle where people want to go work at home. And I, f I feel like it's pretty indicative if people want to go into the office to work because they feel like they can get the most done with the right people. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's you're a, saying it's a, it's a negative if you're, if you're hearing a lot of your employees saying, Hey, I really would possibly, I, I don't know, possibly. Um, but it's, uh, I, I just feel like if you're creating a really strong culture, then people feel like they can succeed more in the office and with the people in the company. A strong culture built trust because I mean, ultimately you're trying to define what those core things are so that, you know, I know that Paul's making a decision based on some other set of parameters that I'm comfortable with um, versus just going renovating. Well, I think that's a better, when I was talking about respect, like that is all part, that, that's kind of like closely related to trust, yeah. right? So mm -hmm. like trusting the other person, respecting the other person, like that's where it all, all yeah. stems from a good culture. And, and I think too many times companies or businesses or even startups like think it's just putting a ping pong table yeah, exactly. in a certain area yeah. or, you know, providing back massages or whatever. And it's so much deeper than that, that yeah. there's not check boxes that you can check in order to get a culture. And it's not always about getting along either. The culture, actually, if you've got a, a strong corporate company culture, a lot of times that allows you to have more debates or more conflict yep. because again, you, there's a trust element. So you exactly. feel comfortable saying, Hey, I don't agree with that. Or I think we need to go in a different direction. And people are okay with that because again, you've got the structure around I respect your opinion, exactly. but dot, dot, dot. Exactly. Well, what do you guys think about like, um, there are a lot of companies right now going toward complete remote working. 
Do you think that that, and, and we need to have an entire episode on this topic and I'm very happy to contribute to that because I've been a part of a company. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Um, between Squiggle <laughs> and everything else, yeah. but you have plenty to say on yeah. remote working. But what do you what do you guys think? Do you think that remote working detracts from a company culture? Do you think that if, if a company culture is rooted so deeply that it could actually withstand being even remote? Well, Maybe an office is just secondary. I think remote working probably requires you to have a different, not necessarily a different culture, but you have to build that fa- the fact in that you're not going to always be in front of each other yeah. as part of the culture. Um, and there's certain people that, uh, you know, would kind of gravitate to that and others that wouldn't. And I think, you know, a lot of times you think about corporate or company culture and, and it has to be a good company culture is, is, I don't think there's a, a thing as good or bad company culture. It's really, is it a strong culture or is it a weak culture? You know, there's different types of company cultures out there and some that I wouldn't necessarily fit in with, but you might. Um, so it's really about are the people that are working in that culture comfortable with the culture? I think that's true. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's not, there is no like this, if you do this, if you have the ping pong table, if you have, right. you know, there's uh, no formula. It's, it's all about the people and their personality, respective personalities, whether they fit in or not. I think like, um, one thing with like remote working, there's a, it's really, really easy to fall in line with a sense of fear when it comes to building a, a company culture, because we call it click fear at Squiggle where, um, essentially whenever you hire a new person, you have to go out of your way to onboard them properly because mm-hmm. th- they're afraid to click on somebody and start talking to them. Oh. Um, oh, and yeah. so, you know, yeah. onboarding is a massive issue. And if companies don't address that, then fear start, and, and a sense of, um, non-communication start to ease into their company culture and permeate there. So I think that you have to cut that at the root. Yeah. I find myself doing a lot of when we bring new people on board, whether it's an intern, full-time person or whatever, like we always have a bigger discussion about like going out of your way to make sure that person feels comfortable approaching you. Absolutely. Um, and then also like uh, just fighting that whole, and even I'm probably the guiltiest one at our company, but being approachable and, you know, having whether it's an intern or anybody like ask a question because, you know, great questions, great at the size that we are at Bulu Box, like it still makes sense for um, anybody to come to me and ask questions and to communicate yeah. with me. And, and I, I never want people to be fearful to approach me. Yeah. You know? and, and, and think about to fight. And think about putting that in a remote work paradigm where you have yeah. to go out of your way to click on somebody. Yeah. It's really hard. Like get, getting people to, to feel comfortable with clicking yes. you. It's like constantly reminding people, like, yeah. it's okay to click and talk to me. It's okay exactly. To exactly. I mean, I think you have to have a culture I think is built by having relationships and having, having the face to face time a lot. So I think if you are going to have like truly remote culture, I think there's times when you have to come together because, you know, technology is getting better, but at the end of the day, you, people react to real people and, and having those conversations and those just little side conversations and, the, and right. things along those lines is much more difficult in a remote situation. This week's episode is brought to you by SP Accounting Group. Matt Westenberg and the team offer an up-and-coming startup everything it needs from an accounting firm without the boring and dry, complicated bean counter persona. We've all used Matt because he enables us to focus on our business while bringing insight and action to our numbers. From payroll to tax planning and strategic guidance, give Matt Westenberg a call and say goodbye to your accounting troubles.
does the does the way that you work though even have anything to do with culture though like the the process in which you work i.e remote working or whatever does that is that even related to culture at all I think when it comes down to the communication of it, but like, are you, are you mentioning, like, are you talking about like the actual mechanism of doing work? Is that what you're talking about? Right. Like, I think so. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, does that even have any, is that two different things? Is that like, does using a Mac have anything to do with the culture? I don't think so. I think those things are supplementary. I think the, the culture is really about the people and, and how safe they feel and how, um, collaborative they feel I like of. that like how safe do you, how yeah yeah, yeah like uh, how safe do you feel when you're that makes sense to me yeah that's interesting what do you guys think about um, company culture when it comes down to like recruiting talent well, I, I think, think it's it huge I was gonna say it's it's probably the most important thing at that early stage I think a lot of early entrepreneurs you know they're going so fast you know they got maybe they're two or three founders and, and they figure they have to hire that next person and if you don't think about the fact that okay if you're a three-person team and you're adding one more person, you've just added, you know, basically 25% of a company on top yep. of it. And then, if you think about it further out, is those three people or those four people that are the first hires are really the ones that are going to be hiring the next ten. And so, you know, your first ten employees are going to re- really be dictating the first 100 employees. Yeah, that's and good. So it's really important to keep in mind yeah. those early hires and not just hiring to get bodies in the door. But mm-hmm. you know, because culture is going to be defined whether you like it or not you might as well be prescriptive about it and be deliberate about it. Yeah. I think that, you know, everybody, it's, it's just like anything you need to have your like, um, unique selling benefit Mm -hmm. and some people might throw money at people. Well, guess what? As a startup, like those aren't the people that you want. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The people that are swayed by a salary. Um, some people might be swayed by benefits. Guess what? Those aren't the people you want working right. at your startup, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, um, the yeah, people, maybe the only thing you have is culture yeah. to throw at them. It's oh, like, I know, <laughs> <laughs> I know this, Brian. Um, so, you know, the people that the type of people that you are able to recruit, um, it needs to be a combination of you know, culture is your unique selling benefit, along with equity. Like, you need to position yourself in a market away from everybody else. Um, you know, we're just fortunate. At, at, at our company where you know what our unique selling position is happens to be something that we're actually really strong at yeah, yeah. um but I, I think a lot of that stuff solves itself like you know i don't know i've told plenty of people like you you want to go make that sort of money go work at mm-hmm. xyz. blank xyz i'm not going to name names <laughs> <laughs> nice so let's let's get into some, some examples okay you know paul and blue box are pretty known around this area for having a strong corporate culture huddle um you know, there's a couple other companies we can talk about the ones that are doing uh, fairly well. So talk about your early days of uh, starting your corporate culture and, and what did you and Stephanie do to make yeah. that? I think a big positive that we had was the advantage of working at a lot of different places, um, you know, from New York to San Francisco and, you know, from client side advertising to um, the ad agency side. So we had a lot of experience and, you know, really what we did was take the best pieces of everywhere that we've worked. We've worked at an absurd amount of places combined. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from Irvin and Smith in Omaha, we were able to kind of, you know, take the color code personality profile. Um, From Renegade Marketing in New York City, kind of take the um, uh, importance of core values. Um, And other places really understand what not to do. So, 
our culture is very deliberate in that we spend time on it, but it's um, consisting of a very few pieces making that happen. Mm -hmm. Um, So actually, you know, right after naming our company, the first thing that we did was sit down and we decided to um, kind of write our manifesto, our position. Um, I think our core, our seven core values has been like the biggest thing. And, um, you know, if we're going to get really geeky, like Jungian brand archetype, which not a lot of people have that. Um, but kind of laying all of those things out and understanding what sort of a company and a brand that we wanted to create. And then actually ruthlessly editing things out to simplify it for everybody. Um, so everybody kind of ultimately understands like, you know, the core values and our brand promise. And those are kind of the two things that we continue to, you know, repeat but probably the most important thing is that respect towards other people, which stems from color code personality and strength finders. So um, you could probably edit all that out and like boil it down to a few things of personality profiles, strength finders, brand promise, um, and core values. Like those four things are what we're constantly repeating. And I think that's the water and the fertilizer for a good culture. If, if you look at the life of a company um, throughout the entire duration, how how rooted in the company culture do you think the founders should be versus letting letting the employees oh. define it? Um, I think I think in the first several years, like the founders are the lead. But when do you pass that off? Even when do you kind of say like, okay, now we're going to transition to like something new, something fresh to where the, you know, it's starting to be defined by the employees. When do you think that transition happens or does it? I think it happens with whoever's you know, leading the ship, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. like we're a few years in, but if at the time in our company, I was like, uh, you know, like I'm really not the best person to be leading the ship and I'm going to step aside and somebody's going to step up or we're going to bring somebody else in to run the company. I think they need to, um, you know, they might change a lot of things or they might just change a few things. But I think whoever is in that position of leadership, if the company doesn't kind of reflect them, um, there's just going to be friction. I think you told me, Brian, if the fish stinks, it starts at the head. Is that, did <laughs> yeah, you say that's, it? Like that's, that's, yeah. that's so, so freaking true. And how, how difficult is it for a big company to retain their, um, exciting culture? How, how, like eventually it, it just becomes corporate dronery if you don't watch it right well i mean i think i mean you can point to the best brands and the ones that have strong company and corporate cultures whether it's again nike where i know my friends who work there you know have their swoosh tattooed on their ankle you know (laughs) and you know you have a really good brand or a pretty good company culture when (laughs) when you have your employees you know tattooing their brand on on them um so i don't think it's it's necessarily i think you have to be deliberate about it but i think it's an evolution and a stacking type of thing so Think about um, culture is evolves as the stories evolve, as the the you know the tri- trials and tribulations of the of the teams evolve, you know, and so all those things kind of build on each other. But it starts at the beginning with the folks that are defining the the core. Yeah. What do we want this company to be? Uh, what are the things that we value, and are we hiring for those values and, and bringing those right people in? So just to kind of wrap it up, what, uh, so company culture is very, very important. Um, a couple of things that teams can can do to further their company culture. What do you guys think? Well, there's, I mean, again, I would point people to um, 
obviously the internet with a lot of different resources out there. There's a couple um, people that are focused on this company culture uh, topic, whether it's Zappos, you know, delivering happiness. You can read all about um, what they've done in that particular space. HubSpot, uh, Buffer is a really good, another example of Buffer uses transparency as as their core culture. I'm jealous of that. Yeah. It's really interesting. Uh, And Netflix, uh, again, all of those have wrote extensively about how they've developed the culture in that Airbnb as well. So I would encourage folks to kind of, explore other people's cultures, but realize that their culture may not fit for your particular startup. Um, use it as a guideline. You said. I think it starts with um, the people and what's helped us is color code profile. I think it's called the Harris color code. I don't yeah. even know the name of it. Um, Gallup strength finders um, and uh, kind of defining the brand promise um, and, and just aligning everybody. So I think it starts there is you know, a, a good spot for it. And honestly, like it's just something that you do. I think I'm having trouble like defining a lot of things because we actually spend so much time on it. Like my co-founder and I, mm-hmm. like we spend so much time on it. And, and the best compliment I've ever received was an employee saying like, I don't know why everybody talks about culture. Like it should just happen. And I was like, oh man, they have no idea the amount of time that we spend. Yeah. You know, discussing like, should we separate the bathrooms or should they stay unisex? Like, <laughs> right, that's right. like hours and hours. So, um, I think it, it all starts at the top. I think giving people a place where they feel like they can succeed and a place where they feel safe. I think that's I a, really a like big... what you had to say about approachability and feeling safe and click fear. Yeah, click fear. Yeah, hashtag so. crush click fear. <laughs> there like you go. That. I like new that. hashtag. We sat down for a really raw story session with John Wirtz, co-founder of Huddle. I kind of want to get a sense of like the early starting of Huddle. Okay. Um, so kind of tell me some of those stories and like how you guys came up with the initial idea, um, how you proved out some traction and all that kind of stuff in the early. Like going back to the earliest days, um, Brian Kaiser and myself were in a duplex over in like Southwest Lincoln um, and David Graff was in the duplex next door to us uh, with uh, Matt Mueller, who was one of our early team members at Huddle as well. And uh, I think the three of us all knew we wanted to start something and we had dabbled with stuff during college. Um, Brian and I wrote like a little, I think it's probably the thing like half of the people who are entrepreneurial in college write like a grading app like a blackboard competitor. (laughs) So we did that for a little while. That was fun. Um, It just seemed like blackboard, particularly at the time, like in 2004, 2005 was just like so clunky to us and and rough. So we, um, we played around with that. Um, We had done design studio through the rake school, which was like kind of real world projects with companies. So we'd gotten a taste of like that confidence level, you know, it was kind of boosted of we can do this there's no real secret sauce. It's a lot of hard work, you know, luck figuring it out. So given all that, like we knew, uh, man, it'd be a ton of fun to start something up ourselves, but hadn't come across the right idea yet. And so I was thinking about law school at the time, like studying for the LSAT. Um, Brian was, and I was finishing up my MBA. David was finishing up his MBA. Um, and I think he's thinking about career in the athletic department or in athletics. That's, you know, what he was working like 40 hours a week on top of the rake school in UNL and the athletic department. Uh, and so, uh, and then Brian was finishing up his engineering degree and we were always tinkering like Brian and I as roommates in college tinkering. So 
So that was like the kind of environment that was sitting there brewing is we had the confidence through college for better or for worse. I and mean, whether it's legit, yeah. the level of confidence we had or not, like we felt like we could do it. Yeah. We we're waiting for the right idea. And then um, Jeff Rakes had been talking with the athletic department and just kind of at a high level was thinking, man, between the students in the Rakes school, you've got Nebraska football world class here across the street. Um, how can I use this talent in the school to help Nebraska have an edge in football? Pretty much, pretty simple. Like, um, and so we sat down around the table one day. Jeff really kind of helped pull a meeting together just to talk about that. Like, what what could we do to help Nebraska football be more competitive? And um, David and Brian and I jumped at the chance to be in that meeting and kind of got invited to sit in there and talk about that. And um, things were getting thrown around, like you know, three D virtual reality headsets, which now actually. It's starting to become a pretty like kind of legit commercial thanks to like you know Oculus and some of the stuff that's hitting the market. At the time, it was still like very kind of buzz, um, vaporware-y kind of stuff, but that's what everyone was enamored with. So that was getting talked about, um, and we essentially said like, "Man, this sounds really exciting. Sounds like there's some fun problems here to solve. We don't know how to solve them yet, but like, let us go back to our duplex, hack away on some prototypes, and come back and pitch you guys on, you know, on a concept." Um, so it's a basic amount of kind of user research, but David had been in the athletic department for, you know, four years. And so he had pretty good sense of the things there that were like really clunky. And there's these very like visceral things going on in the athletic department that you could just see were out of whack, like hundreds of DVDs being burnt, handed out to athletes every week and then recollected. Like it was just visually like archaic and clunky and annoying to deliver this information that way. And then same thing with playbooks and scouting reports, it's like big paper binders. Um, it was clunky. You could just see it. And so we use that as our inspiration more so than like, what's the coolest kind of, um, you know, like 3d virtual reality kind of tech we could put out there that people would get all enamored over, but never would, wouldn't actually solve like the real problems. Um, and that was really like the key pretty much was figuring out like the problem was communication. They had way more fundamental issues than needing virtual reality to get reps. Like they were putting post-it notes on lockers as their main, you know, messaging communication mechanism and handing out DVDs with lots of really valuable video that wasn't getting watched. Mm-hmm. So, was, so we put together this prototype. That was a ton of fun. Like I remember sitting down like in our little bedrooms at the duplex sitting next to Kai's with, with DG there and like coding this up in, in WPF, like thick client, you know, windows application, um, trying to find that magic blend of like smoke and mirrors, but a little bit of interactivity to give them a taste of how like video and playbook and messaging could come together. Um, and what we essentially wrote was like a few screens that showed how like a scouting report could be interactive. So you, you see a play, you know, you click on the quarterback, it pops up that quarterback's information that you you know that lives in the paper scouting report. Um, you drill into like that quarterback, and you can see you know video clips that the coaches identified of you know this is what I really want you to watch on this quarterback. So the scenario would be like I'm on Nebraska's defense, I'm looking at this, and then next to the play was also linked video clips of that specific play. So we we're kind of like making those key connections between this information. So play scouting report, you've got personnel, you've got video like. Let's just tie it together. Um, so we got a chance to meet with the coaching staff, show them that prototype. Um, we put it on tablets, which also were 
before their time is, you know, Microsoft early tablets, but our concept was still really tablet driven. And so coaches, coaches dug that. So we had the stylus, we were showing them how you could telestrate on top of this stuff. So that was kind of mocked up in there. We showed them how stuff linked together. We talked about how, you know, every athlete and coach would have their own account. So they're logging in and seeing exactly what you want them to see. And like that fundamental concept, just, you could see in the room, like it totally clicked, like coaches got it. Um, that was January and they wanted it for spring ball. And so we're like, and we're on, like, we're onto something here. If Nebraska's this fired up about it, um, and they, you know, have kind of best in class tech right now, then this really could have some legs. So, so that was kind of the beginning. It was just like brainstorming. And then we had all the classic, like fun in the duplex. Like, what are we going to name this company? It's like, I can remember sitting on the couch, like with like American Idol running in the background. That was like the heyday of American Idol getting started. So I kind of roughly remember that, like, um, so we've we're just sitting there like riffing off of, you know, names for the company. What are we going to call the product? Like all that stuff. That's totally fun that you have to try to enjoy in the moment. Cause you don't get to like name your company very often. And then just a lot of work to try to pull the business plan together, this prototype together, trying to meet with Nebraska as often as we could to keep like moving them forward. And our ultimate goal was to get Nebraska on board as a paying client that was going to be killer like early validation um, and then if we you know had nebraska on board as a paying client you know we we all kind of felt like we can get behind this invest all of our time kind of all in on seeing if we can build a company around this concept and it took us like a year pretty much to get nebraska to to actually like sign and the check you know the check arrived at the office um essentially a year later uh yeah the check arriving felt great um <laughs> But it's like, we talk about this at Huddle now too. Like, Man, it's just so hard to like celebrate the moments probably the way you should. Like I remember the check showing up. We all stopped for like maybe five minutes, high-fived. And then it's just like back to work. Um, but that means, I, I mean, that means you're onto something that you love and you're probably doing it for the right reason and it's, it's a good sign. Um, in hindsight and even now, I think we'd like, we're trying to do a better job of consciously kind of enjoying these moments along the way a little bit better with the team and ourselves um, just to make sure that you don't surprise yourself and hit that burnout, you know, that burnout level that comes when you're not actually enjoying these things along the way. But yeah, the check arriving was cool. So, so yeah, so that was like the beginning of the story. So then we started um, entering business plan competitions. I literally like, I went out and just bought like a book on how to start an LLC. Like um, we did almost all the paperwork ourselves I got a patents for dummies, literally patents for dummies book. I'm not like not saying that figuratively. It was, um, and David and I read that and we wrote our patent around like the concept of this portal, which we, we actually got granted. So it's one of our patents we ha- we have um, around like a portal for bringing video um, diet, you know, flow diagrams, you know, the generic term for a playbook, but kind of flow diagrams, strategic diagrams, uh, quizzing, that kind of stuff together. So we were like, we were writing our first patent, forming the LLC, figuring that out. Um, working with a lawyer for the first, I don't think I'd ever like interacted with a lawyer, like an attorney in my life. So we're sitting down in an attorney's office, uh, an attorney that we were, you know, friends with and knew and um, figuring out how to incorporate, talking to an accountant, figuring out like, how, I guess we use QuickBooks, like what do we need to do? What, like, was going, what was going through your head at that time? Like what, what are you thinking about? Like this is actually turning into a company. Like, or is it? Was it? Yeah. Did it feel like that? Yeah, it felt, it definitely felt like it was turning into a company. Um, Man, I was I was loving just like 
learning all the stuff around building a company. Um, I think we were really lucky in that all three of us really enjoyed that. Um, you know, Brian's passion for technology is really deep. So he went deeper on that piece. David and I definitely went deeper on the company kind of um, structure piece. All three of us are huge on the culture side, but like the structure side was more David and I. Um, I think we just like, we really enjoyed it. Like we liked the idea of trying to do it right, but not over-engineering it. We liked the ideas of like learning from people who come before us, like, the kind of craft around creating this like lightweight entity, but it's, but you're doing like smart things early on. You don't get burned on. Like, um, we were super lucky to have Jim McClurg, our, our chairman of our board now, but as an early mentor, he really like pushed us to be like one step ahead of the maturity that we would have naturally landed at. So probably six months earlier or maybe even a year earlier than we would have really been taking like a board of directors seriously. Like Jim's getting us to think about what that looks like. And even before that, Jim is getting us to think about, you know, what does a board of advisors look like and how do you create just enough thin structure around that where these people that are advising you feel like they're kind of a part of what's happening and there's a little bit of formality, you know, they can show up on the website. You've got a board of advisors. Um, he connected us with a guy named Dwayne Thomas, who's uh, one of the like heads on the finance team of Valentino's here in town. So obviously, totally different industry. Valentino's, you know, doing um, food and retail, but helped us really think about just like what makes for a good PL. Like, what? Why do you need to care about a balance sheet? Um, even early on, like cash flow and how important that is, and how to think about a simple cash flow statement. So like, we were getting connected to all these people. Um, man, it's a ton of fun. I think hopefully like if you're starting a company like that part of it feels overwhelming, definitely, but also fun. It's like a whole new science essentially that you're learning. So how did you kind of fund? Yeah. Uh, so early on, like funding wise, the, the three of us agreed that we would each go scrounge up $10,000. However, we wanted to go do it, um, between Brian, myself, um, and David. And that 30 K was going to be like the, initial seed fund. Um, it was important to us cause it showed like we had some skin in the game and 10 grand was definitely like a serious, serious sum of money when you're finishing your MBA and living in a duplex. So I talked to friends and family essentially. Um, actually my grandma, uh, like loaned the money pretty much, um, which was awesome. Uh, there was convertible notes weren't as like trendy back then. So it was just like pure, debt for my friends and family to pull the 10k together um and i think i don't know how you know what brian and david ended up doing we didn't really talk about it it's just like the 30k arrived yeah uh, we got it pulled together and that got us like that got us going kind of proved to all of us that we were all bought in um and it seemed like like the right amount i don't even know how we arrived at that amount exactly it just felt like 10k was about right 30k gave us like that little bit of runway early on to to get moving. Uh, we started entering a business plan competition. So then we were essentially like structuring the company a little bit. That wasn't taking a ton of time, you know, writing patents, doing that stuff. Um, building the product, obviously that was the lion's share of time. Uh, David and myself were out networking with coaches, athletic directors, like at the division one level, um, and the NFL, like trying to work into those networks through Nebraska as a starting point. And then we were entering business plan competitions and writing, writing a business plan which I actually really like doing like the business modeling and the business plan piece. So 
I took a lot of the lead on that with David's help. Um, and through the business plan competitions over the next like seven, eight months, we won $60,000, $65,000 in cash like that, like novelty size checks. Like literally it was, <laughs> it was weird. Like the checks would arrive at our office and they'd just be made out to like whoever registered for the business plan competition. So I remember one day like David, I think it was made out to David. Um, might've even been made out to Brian, um, because he was still an undergrad, like finishing his engineering degree. So for some of these undergrad only business competitions, we had to have him register. So like a check would arrive at the office for 25 grand, like made out to Brian Kaiser. It was just like, uh, you cool with signing that over to the company, right? Cause this is just like a check showing up in your name is kind of crazy on those business planning competitions. How you, it kind of seemed like surreal that the money actually arrived. But yeah, that kept our bank account rolling. We were able to hire three or four interns. So then another like startup mensch mentor, huge help was Matthew Wagner, who runs iSoft Data. Um, and he got us hooked up with an office right across from their office on his ninth street here next to it's Red Nine now. It was PO Pairs at the time. Down the hall was Allied Strategy. Uh, so Colby, Jeff, Britton, those guys. There's like maybe one or two other companies kind of interspersed in those offices. It was everything you'd hope for out of a startup office. Like the HVAC was a little sketchy. Um, there's just kind of junk everywhere. I remember office we had to like push some cabinets out of the way that were like stacked full of like fax machines and old copiers that were all busted. So like that was like the whole corner of the office. Um, and uh, but it had good internet. Um, you could fit desks and chairs in there. And so like, you know, we had, we had what we needed during the summer. We had to leave all the doors open and like come to work in shorts and tank tops. So you didn't just like sweat yourself out of the office. Um, but that was, I mean, Matthew was hugely valuable in getting us started. I think the office was like a hundred bucks a month in rent. Uh, and that included, you know, everything. Matthew was just like, okay. get us in there, help us out. And then, you know, we would be walking across the hall or he would be walking across the hall to help us out constantly. Like, fundraising around accounting around sales you know whatever it might be um, hugely influential early on and then we'd walk down the hall you know late at night I remember being there and you'd just be you know need a breather walk down the hall at 9 or 10 p.m. and allied strategy be in there you know somebody would be sitting out in the hall um, and you'd just be you know chatting about dot net or what you know whatever we happen to be thinking about at the time so same kind of environment that you're getting at like an in motion or you know up here in fuse or turbine flats or the entire haymarket to a degree. Yeah. Um, we had a little microcosm of that next to PO pairs and it was you know it was awesome. Yeah. So that was kind of the next stage it was business plan competition funded interns and the three of us like slogging away um, in the extreme cold or extreme heat depending on the season and that was what got us to like Nebraska had a product they were using they paid us for it you know, about a year later. The other thing that happened along the way there, the athletic department invited me to come speak at a fundraising event. So they had all the, you know, kind of wealthy donors in the room for Nebraska football. And their thought was, you know, have Huddle come speak and present and demo this product. It's like, it's flashy. It demoed really well. We've always been blessed by having a product that demos really well. So um, I don't take it lightly the fact that you know not everybody has that like where i can show video of professional sports and tell straight on top of it and everybody you know, it looks cool so they just wanted us to demo just kind of show like nebraska's on the leading edge here's this tool that nebraska's using that nobody else has it's being developed here in nebraska it's a good story so it was great like they leveraged that but then when i was up there talking about it 
we were just getting ready to start like seriously thinking about fundraising, raising a round of capital and, and just super lucky. Like afterwards, um, Bill Dana came up, who's a, just a business leader in, in Omaha. Um, and he was in a young president's organization group. So they have these forums within YPO. Um, and his group of 10 YPO members had been like looking for something to kind of invest in together. Thought it would be fun. They would all get to learn. And so he walked up to me. He's like, hey, do you guys, you guys raising money? Like, As a matter of fact, we're just getting ready to. And he's like, well, I think my YPO group would be interested in, you know, talking with you guys. And so before we even really went out and hit the road pitching really hard, I mean, granted, all the networking and things we were doing, it's always pitching. But um, they came up and ultimately ended up investing a million dollars. And then uh, Jeff Rakes and a good friend of his from back in Microsoft days named Pete Higgins, who's in the, the VC world out in Seattle, were also a part of that round for an additional amount. Um, and so that was our Series A, I guess you could say the 30K we all put in, plus business plan winnings got us about 100K, so that was our seed really. Um, and then Series A, um, and that money hit the bank account right about the same time the Nebraska check hit the bank account, a little bit after. Um, and that was... We started in January 2006, and that was about like a year, a year and a half later. So I guess like the rough timeline was we started January 2006. We incorporated and were like really all full in when we had finished school in um, May, actually Cinco de Mayo. It's kind of our official birthday. That's when we filed. Um, So May 5th, and then a year later, so from May 5th, 2006 to about June 2007 is what it took to get the product in the hands of Nebraska where they're actually using it, yeah. get a payment from them, raise that first round of capital. Are there any, um, any failures that you've kind of had along the way that you've learned from and come out of stronger as a person? Yeah, uh, we failed a ton uh, for sure. So, I mean, so the first failure, like while everyone was talking about, you know, this exciting new company in Lincoln that's killing it, um, you know, we signed Nebraska. That was great. We kind of hit that goal and then just kind of flatlined on sales for a while. Um, so we had one client that paid us, I think Nebraska at the time paid us around 50K um, to use Huddle, which we considered to be heavily discounted in hindsight. It uh, wasn't really, but um, in our minds, this was going to be like we're selling it for six figures a year subscription to every Division One, you know, football program in the NFL. Um and in reality, we had one team paying us a discounted amount to be a beta partner. Uh, so that we were just slogging it away, like traveling around, driving around, pitching every coaching staff, athletic director at the division one level we could. Long enterprise sales process. Coaches were loving the concept. We knew we were still onto something powerful, but there was like a hundred different reasons why you know, we weren't closing a sale. Um, and so by 2008, we had burned through that entire first round of money that we had raised we had two customers at that time i think nebraska and then the jets we added which was a big win that was really exciting you know we got got some energy off of that for a while but the reality was it was still just two and coach callahan had driven both of them um coach callahan went from nebraska to the jets and introduced them to huddle and um they loved it loved the concept it was a totally legit client but we still hadn't proven yet that we could go out and like sell another team uh, without having Coach Callahan involved, apparently. So, 
Yeah, yeah, no joke. So yeah, Coach Callian was on our like coaches advisory board, um, and a great advocate for us. So that was like, like behind the scenes, pretty brutal, because we were like we were burning through this money. Um, December two thousand eight was coming up. The economic environment was pretty awful. Uh, end of two thousand eight, early two thousand nine, and that's when. You know, so we definitely felt like we were failing for sure. We'd also built all this stuff that wasn't getting used. Now, this was before people really talked as much about lean analytics and um, build, measure, learn, and just lean in general and really being more metric driven. And so you know, we were building these things that it was taking us way too long to figure out that they just weren't, weren't getting utilized. Like we weren't looking at the numbers. And you're also in classic like startup denial. Like nobody really wants to look at the ugly corners of their business. Um, and so we had same failings as anyone else. Like we're kind of turning a blind eye to the fact that we built this giant quizzing module that coaches could build quizzes and send quizzes to their players. And like it was being used by one coach at Nebraska who was the one that we like built it for essentially. Um, and even he wasn't like that satisfied with it. It was like kind of clunky and broken and paper quizzes were still better. Um, and we had like three of those modules essentially that were like in that same shape. The video distribution side was like kind of clicking and then everything else we built, which was a lot of our time, it wasn't working. People weren't really using the playbook that we built. People weren't using the scattering report system we built. I built out an RSS feed system where you could load RSS feeds of like news about your team and sports and like the ticker ran down at the bottom. Like it sounded really cool. It was just super stupid. Like, (laughs) you know, nobody was using Huddle to see like an RSS feed of news. Um, It's totally like a flashy, you know, flashy, lame waste of time. So that like reality was all starting to sink in. Like we're building a bunch of stuff that actually isn't working. Um, few nuggets are there that seem to be clicking. We have two clients and we're out of money. Um, and then we had to make like the biggest pivot we've made in the history of Huddle was taking what we had built in this thick client kind of heavyweight server on site, you know, six figure type price point model um, and adapt it to browser based, totally hosted. See if we could get the price point down to a point where that would work for high schools and small colleges. Um, really shift the model to, I mean, the workflows and the things these high schools and small colleges were doing was different and build out a system they could use end to end. At the Division One NFL level, we layered on top of systems they already had in place to capture the video and data. And we were really just a distribution mechanism on top of that. Um, but in 2008, end of 2008, we're running out of money. We put together a new business plan based on all this demand we were hearing over the phone via email from high schools and small colleges that saw what we were doing and said hey that's like that's actually what we need to like how can we get it and we had to keep telling them no this is too expensive for you this isn't built for you um we're not about you know we're not a high school football company we're an nfl division one tools company um and then it took a pretty big beat down and burning through all our money to figure out Actually, maybe we should be a high school uh, sports <laughs> company. On our door. Yeah, just a classic case of you know we should have been able to hear that mm-hmm. six months earlier. I mean, you can say should have you know as much as you want. I guess like hindsight twenty twenty, but um, it seems obvious in hindsight. Like, would you rather go after a market that is thirty two NFL teams and one hundred and twenty ish college football teams, long enterprise selling cycle? price point that we had yet to prove was actually anywhere near where we thought it would need to be. Um, CFOs and front offices that have to sign off on big contracts, tons of leverage. Everyone gives these people, these teams things for free just to put the logo on their website. 
Um, or would you rather go after a market that's 20,000 high schools, many thousands of teams at these high schools, a coach that can pull out a credit card and make a buying decision in a lot of cases or a booster club, um, you know, browser based where we have a lot more control over the tech and can host it and manage it. So like, I mean, all these things seem obvious now, but at the time that like it wasn't our model. Yeah. So it was just, it was hard to see. But like fast forward, like 2008, we pitched that business plan to our investors. Luckily, we have phenomenal investors that like they were sold on us as a team in the space and just like the fundamentals of in sports. Sports is this lasting, you know, since the beginning of humanity, essentially, we've had sports and athletes and coaches. And since the beginning of sports, they've needed to communicate and game plan and prepare. Yeah. Um, I think we were all bought in on like video, you know, so like the fundamentals of sports and winning you know, athletes and coaches video as probably the most important teaching tool in sports aside from being literally on the field doing it. Um, and so when we showed them like, here's a market we actually think needs these tools, we're gonna have to rebuild them from scratch essentially, but here's how we're going to go after it. They got behind us again. We raised another round of money and probably like the worst time to raise. Um, but that's a testament to our investors. Um, and then we spent from really didn't get rolling on it till April. So pretty much April to August, like rebuilding everything, not everything, but rebuilding the parts that we knew had the value, which was essentially sharing video, capturing, sharing video, um, rebuilding that for high school and small college, rolling it out to 12 partner pilot partners by August. So it was like, we raised the money. That's when we like finally got our act in gear pretty much. It was like, it was kind of fun playtime almost to a degree. When we started the company, like a bunch of adolescents, just, you know, startup adolescents figuring things out. Like, um, and I think the reality really hit like January, you know, 2009. Like, here's the things that work and don't work we've got to get something out and prove it out by football season. And in our world in sports, like you have hard dates yeah. when season starts. Um, if you're not ready by season starting teams, don't adapt big new wow. tools in the midst of season. So, um, so we got after it and went on a nice little, nice little run after that of like these 12 pilot partners loved it. They used it end to end. We originally thought it was going to be kind of like with our NFL Division One teams, like a companion to what they were already doing. Um, but we gave them all the tools to go end to end. It was just a pretty clunky, yeah. tough process to go from your camera all the way through to sharing it on Huddle without using any other tools. But but you could do it. Um, and these teams were doing it. They were they were getting over the bumps. You know, we had hit that like 10x value point where that Huddle process was so much more valuable that they were slogging their way through awesome. the crappy parts of it. So we knew we were onto something even more powerful at that point. So take me to today, and um, you guys just raised quite a bit of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so take me through uh, where, where you guys are, are today. Yeah, so so I guess like the ramp from that point to today, it was like, you know, those 12 pilot teams, 350 teams the next year, and then 2,000, 6,000, 12,000. Now we're up to around... 95% of American football teams globally, um, which there are a handful outside the, U- the U.S. Um, and Canada that play American football, but kind of across the landscape of American football, about 95% are using Huddle as a fundamental tool to either study video, game plan, you know, communicate, and or like recruit you know, at the college level, so searching through 
the athletes on huddle at the high school level to power their recruiting. Um, and now we're up to about 50% of basketball teams that are using huddle. So that's been like the next big initiative for us is to really figure out basketball. Uh, so that's been awesome. So that's given us like this platform now to think about the next level of you know, where we're going with this tool set. So, and part of that getting to the next level is raising this round of capital. Uh, so we raised 72 million um, really to help us grow our team, do a great job in Boston and London, you know, Lincoln and Omaha to build out a great team there. We also have people working remotely in California, Texas, New York. Um, you know, we've got our eyes out for acquisitions. We know that'll be a part of our growth strategy too, is finding you know, other great companies, products, teams in this space um, and bringing them on and just investing in the platform so we can move fast, provide you know, awesome speed, awesome reliability, performance on huddle. Um, we've seen what happens when you hit like a tipping point within a sport like American football. I think we're getting close in basketball where if you get enough of the market using and getting a ton of value out of your tool, then you can start to really power recruiting. You can start to really power film exchange between teams when they're trading, you know, trading video with each other. Um, you can start to become a really amazing like repository of content for people to learn and get better. And so it kind of unlocks a pretty big additional sphere of value. Um, and so, you know, we consider it really important to take these key sports and get to that critical tipping point. Wow. Um, if you had somebody who's starting a company um, and you've been through the gamut of like from here to there, um, what would you tell them? Yeah. So one big lesson learned we had for us is try to find a market where the users are as closely connected to people making purchasing decisions as possible. Um, you know, that's a big part of what we struggled with early on with Division One NFL, these teams, like the people that wanted the product were so disconnected in a lot of cases from the people that wrote, ultimately wrote the check or signed off on the contract. Um, it's just like you end up spinning so much of your time trying to bridge that gap instead of just really deeply solving those users problems and then getting rewarded for it. So yeah, if you can find a place or at least find a starting point where those users can make that decision. I mean, these models we're seeing in enterprise around like Dropbox or, um, I mean, the list is long. I think Dropbox is one of the best examples where individuals are making these buying decisions and then they're kind of organically rolling their way up to eventually having these, you know, a big, enterprise Dropbox account for a company. But that probably started with three people somewhere in some department that made an individual $99 a year purchasing decision. So that's like a really powerful trend that was huge for our company. So we would essentially go out and get the quarterback club, you know, for a football team to say like, yeah, this is a tool we want our football team to have. Coach wants it. Let's do it. And now we're, it's taken us in some cases at these schools years to get to the point where We've got two teams or three teams using it, and the athletic you know, director uh, no longer wants four different booster clubs kind of paying for this tool. They want to make it an athletic department-wide tool and put it on their budget, and now we're billing the school. If we had started out trying to sell to a school yeah. like just through an athletic director, we would, we'd be right back into that boat again of slogging through you know, RFPs and sole source provider you know, documents. Um, so... Find something where you can go grassroots, where you're, the value you're providing is as directly connected to the revenue you're collecting as possible. 
even if the model later might change in the way you're selling to accelerate, um, you know, try to start there. Ask for the money. That's something that I, I try to talk about. Like go, I mean, everyone sells. If you're in the startup business, no matter who you are on the team, you better be prepared to sell and learn about it and study it. It's its own science. It's its own craft. Um, it's really fun when it goes well. It's brutal when it when it doesn't. But like you'll never learn anything faster yeah. than going out and selling. So we at Huddle early on and still today we send our pretty much our whole team out to trade shows and clinics, standing behind the booth, just getting the crap kicked out of you awesome. over and over again. Um, man, there's nothing better. Like you've got to go through that gauntlet, and it's scary. Like I uh, wrote an article for Silicon Prairie News a while back and just talked about how like when we were pivoting to the high school space, I had this spreadsheet that I was just just like staring at on my desk of all the like Lincoln football head coaches for Lincoln high schools in Omaha. Um, And just like feeling that hurdle of getting over, like picking up the phone and starting to call these coaches and going and visiting them because you just have that like extreme fear in your gut. Like what if I visit every single person on this list and I come back to the office like empty handed, like we're just completely off. Mm-hmm. Um, that's super scary. Like we still, when we roll out a new product, you still feel that kind of fear of even early on, like what if this concept is just completely off and what if I've got no better concepts in my head and this is the last thing I'm going to come up with. And the worst thing you can do is channel that into, well, I guess I, I just don't want to know. Like, I'd, you know, I'd rather not know. Um, so you, you got to get like fired up about the idea of, going out, learning, hearing the objections, seeing your idea just get ripped apart and actually let that energize you, essentially. Which takes like a switch flipping in your head and it, it gets unflipped in my head and I have to flip it back on of like, that's actually the fun, exciting part. That's what you need to get fired up about is like to go out and let people poke all the holes in these ideas. Uh, come back, patch them up a little bit, completely change it, go back out, let them poke holes in it and you know try to do that multiple times a day if you can. So just thinking about examples of times early on where it was really painful to go out and ask, ask for the money. When we were picking those 12 pilot partners for Huddle, um, one of the pilot partners I was hoping to land was my, my high school alma mater, Blue Springs South. Um, and I was pretty well connected down there. I mean, I, I spoke at our high school graduation. I knew all the teachers. I was the teacher's pet kind of, kind of guy back in the high school days. Um, and so... You know, I had great relationships. I'm thinking if there's a slam dunk to be had, it's go down to Blue Springs South and Blue Springs High School, two great football programs, and we'll get them on board. How could they possibly pass up alumni coming back? We've got Nebraska and the, and the Jets using this tool. I've got a super flashy demo. These guys want to win football games, and I offered it to them for free, for life. Our highest, our highest package, you know, that we had invented that didn't exist yet, but for free for life. Um, and so I went down and got shot down by both schools um, in a totally nice way. But essentially like, you know, yeah, that sounds great. Here's 10 different things that your system doesn't have yet that we're worried about. Here's why we're not ready to put our video online yet. We're worried about security. What if an athlete shares a password? Like um, they had me show them the video quality and they're worried about having compressed video and it didn't rewind as smooth as, you know, all the local desktop software that they were using at the time. And so it was, it was all the fundamental things we were super scared about um, that we knew came with moving video online and our model around like security and quality. And, uh, and they just hit on all of them. And then in a very polite way told me, no, what was going through your 
um, I mean, I got to drive three and a half hours back from Kansas city, just thinking like, how can we be building this business that we're going to sign, you know, tens of thousands of high schools on and I can't give it away for free to my alma mater, Mm -hmm. to my former math, you know, eighth grade math teacher, who's now the athletic director that I had spent, you know, years with during school, um, getting to know. So man, it was a gut. I mean, it was a gut check. Ultimately what came out of it is just like reaffirming the things that we knew coaches were scared about so we could get our strategy shaped around how do you handle concerns about security? How do you handle concerns about video quality when you're compressing it and sharing it online? Um, it just like, yeah, I mean the short story of it is, is brutal and shakes your confidence, but I came back the next year and signed both of them up for full price. (laughs) So that was the, you know, the fun in the end was, you know, coming back around and signing two really powerful teams. And that's still early on. I mean, we had 12 pilot partners. So every team we signed the next year was still huge. Like, um, and they've been awesome advocates, both of those schools, the coaches, there are phenomenal. My teachers are phenomenal. So I don't want to dog on, on them. Mm -hmm. I get why they said no. Mm -hmm. Um, but man, I just, I think it's a good example. That's always top of mind for me of you got to go out and ask and be prepared to get your teeth kicked in by even some of the softballs that you think you're going to have, you know, early on, but you just can't stop. You just got to keep, I mean, I was in my car driving and selling that year for, I mean, for weeks and weeks. I was driving to Kearney. I was driving to Lawrence, Kansas. I was driving to Oklahoma. I was driving to Arkansas. Um, I was just in my car, like going and and selling. I mean, I was our salesperson. So you just got to get, got to get good at it. Get your thin, your skin a little bit thicker. Um, and yeah, if you feel like you just got shot down by somebody that you can't, that's blowing your mind that they're not on board, um, I feel you. I'd like, same thing happened to us too, but there will be people that see your vision that are on board if you keep reshaping it and, and you're providing real value and you're solving a real problem. Like, you'll find those people. You just, it just takes a lot of time and work. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much to John Wirtz for taking the time to catch up with us. If you've got a question for us this week, don't hesitate to reach out on Twitter at the IO podcast. And if you haven't already subscribed on iTunes, go ahead and take care of that now. Music for this podcast is brought to you by bensound.com. As always, and until next time, go build something big.